0: Welcome to Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Melody Edwards. And
1: I'm Bob Beck. Coming up on the show, education students are skeptical of their future as teachers in Wyoming.
2: I'm looking at going out of state and then coming back when this is hopefully over.
0: <laughs> Proposed budget cuts to Meals on Wheels at the federal level have those who depend on the delivery service worried about the future.
3: I used to cook all the time and I loved to cook, but
4: who has the up for it?
1: When Congress eventually reforms the Affordable Care Act, the worry in Wyoming is that many could lose their insurance.
0: That puts a burden on hospitals. It puts a burden on costs. We'll also hear about declining moose numbers. Those stories and more coming up on Open Spaces on Wyoming Public Radio News. Welcome to Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Melody Edwards.
1: And I'm Bob Beck. K-12 education in Wyoming is facing immediate cuts at the state level. And President Trump's federal budget proposes cuts to education, too. There's even talk in Washington of dismantling the U.S. Department of Education. This got Wyoming Public Radio's education reporter Tennessee Watson wondering how University of Wyoming education students were feeling about their future in teaching.
5: Thinking about how future teachers might be feeling about their chosen profession brought me on a nice spring stroll across the University of Wyoming's campus. Our studios are just across Prexy's Pasture from the College of Education. Outside, elementary schoolers from the lab school are playing, and inside I find Dr. Leslie Rush, Associate Dean for Undergraduate Programs in the College of Education. She's been with the college for 15 years.
6: When I first came Most of our students who graduated could get a job in Wyoming if they wanted. But over time, as the salaries of classroom teachers have increased in Wyoming, we saw um, the competition for our students being a little bit steeper.
5: That's because Wyoming salaries were attracting experienced teachers from out of state. Now there's uncertainty if districts will be doing any hiring at all. Rush offers a recent teacher career fair as an example.
6: This year, um, there were not as many Wyoming districts represented as in previous years. Now, what that leads me to believe is that there's some lack of certainty in the school districts about whether they'll be able to hire. But
5: if salaries shrink with budget cuts, that could err in new teachers' favor. Rush says when schools do have openings...
6: They'll have less salary to put behind those openings, and so they might be more likely to hire a brand new teacher.
5: But I wonder if lower pay has dissuaded students from wanting to pursue teaching. Rush says no. She thinks that a passion for the profession is what drives most but she sends me over to a classroom to find out for myself. I find a group of mostly second and third year students waiting for their class on diversity and the politics of schooling to begin. And I ask them how they're feeling about cuts to education. It's scary, but I mean, it's something that I think we're all passionate about. So I think that it's super important to us. So I think as future educators, of course that's in mind, but I think the broad spectrum of things is the children and. I'm really excited about that. So That's Brooke Karm. Across the table is Macy Evans. Her focus is arts education, and she knows arts programs are often the first to receive cuts. How does that factor into your decision making? I started my process before I guess all of this happened, and then I'm not just going to switch just because I might not make money, I guess. Evans said even before the budget cuts, teachers warn their students. You're not going to make any money, so... You either get out now or do it for a good reason other than money. But what about students hoping for a good salary in Wyoming?
2: I'm looking at going out of state and then coming back when this is hopefully over.
5: (laughs) (laughs) That's Baxter Heinert. She's counting on another boom in the oil and gas industry. I was never planning on leaving until this started to happen, and
2: it's looking more and more appealing to get out of here for a little while.
5: It's appealing to Gabrielle Kramer, too. She's worried that as classroom size increases and support staff diminishes, that she'll be overwhelmed with work.
7: I think burnout is going to be a real thing.
5: Is anybody feeling more fired up because of the cuts? I am, because now even less people
2: are motivated to be teachers. So that just makes me want to be the best teacher I can be to help students because they're going to have less resources.
5: And for Allison Searles, being the best teacher for her students also means staying engaged with policy. So... How engaged are these future teachers? At this point, Professor Angela Jaime is in the room and the class is about to start, so I quickly ask one more question to the whole group. Does anybody feel like they know how education in the state is funded? No one's full arm shoots up. I see about five half-raised hands. Professor Jaime jumps in.
0: You all read an entire chapter on it, like four weeks
7: ago. Uh
5: Uh-oh. I've started some trouble. It's time for class to start and time for me to go.
7: Thank you. Thank you.
5: On my way out, I bump into Ken Hilton. This Casper native is getting a master's in school counseling.
2: The cynic or pragmatist in me is worried that we're not going to be able to recruit or, or retain quality teachers. And then the more positive thought that I have with that is the people that choose to work in Wyoming typically choose to work in Wyoming because they want to be here anyway. You know, like That's why I want to be here. Like, I, I've grown up here, and I, I value the community and what the state has to offer as far as like, outdoors, and I think it's a good place to raise my daughter. I like that she lives here. So I think that that is like kind of a glimmer of positivity. There will be some people that are willing to take a, a lesser-paying job because it's the place they want to be.
5: Ken heads off to the climbing wall, and I head back to get Professor Jaime's read on students' general willingness to make things work, even in a tough economic climate for teachers.
0: They know they want to be teachers. They love kids. They're passionate about learning. They're passionate about curriculum. But for them, it's not real yet.
5: So Professor Jaime does what she can to help them grasp how broader policies will impact their work in the classroom.
0: Thanks to you, they all now have an assignment for Wednesday (laughs) on what... um, What House bills have been proposed in the state of Wyoming? What's the federal
5: conversation I'd love to go back and hear what they find out, but I'm not sure these um, students want to talk to me, seeing as I'm the cause of their extra homework. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Tennessee Watson. Sticking with the subject of education,
0: when University of Wyoming President Lori Nichols was hired, Wyoming's Native American community was glad to see she had a strong record of advocating for tribal students. This month, Nichols made a visit to the Wind River Reservation to visit schools and talk to the business councils about several new initiatives to recruit kids there to attend UW. James Trosper works for the High Plains American Indian Research Institute on campus and is collaborating with Nichols to make some of those dreams a reality. I sat down with Trosper to discuss the goals of Nichols' recent trip.
8: Well, the main purpose was to talk about some initiatives that are happening here at UW, mainly concerning student enrollment, student scholarships, um, what kind of work we're doing here at UW to really target um, as far as recruitment and retention of Native American students.
0: And how is that, uh, you know, how is that enrollment right now? Is it pretty good?
8: Well, I was a student here in the early 90s. There you know, was a lot of work that was being done with Native American students back then. And I've seen a drastic uh, drop in enrollment since that time. I would say that right now we're probably at an all-time low, you know, as far as enrollment goes of Native American students here at UW. You know, we um, started looking at, you know, some of the reasons, um, and one of the correlations that we found was that it, it happened when, um the multicultural affairs uh, did away with the person who was specifically appointed to uh, recruit uh, Native American students. And so when they did away with that, we saw a drop in enrollment um, for Native American students. And, you know, it's one of the things that I really liked about President Nichols. And one of the things that they decided to do there was to uh, really look at what is the population of Native Americans in the state. And th- you know that, that, that should you know, correspond to the population, you know, percentage-wise of Native American students um, in the student body. And in this state, we did some really quick calculations when we saw um, that she might be coming here. And so if we were to do that, we would be shooting for around 250 to 300 students. And uh, right now we're at eighty two
0: I know that that was something that um, that President Nichols did at when she was in uh, South Dakota as well was it was that she um, kind of created a, a an American Indian center on mm-hmm. campus to make Native Americans feel more welcome on campus. Is that something that's on the you know table to explore?
8: Yes, definitely. It was really interesting because I was able to visit with her when I first graduated from lander um, high school i got a scholarship for pre-med, and ended up going to North Dakota. There was a huge American Indian student population there. And uh, we were in a, a house, basically. Um, the American Indian Studies had offices there. And th- there was just a lot of activity. It was a really a place that um, had a sense of uh, community. And that's something that Native Americans, um, that's just really important. It's a value. And so the retention rates were good. And you know that, that was my personal experience. And when I was visiting with President Nichols, she said, we did the exact same thing in South Dakota. And so that is one of the things that she has put forward here at the University of Wyoming.
0: Yeah, and why do you think that um, Native American students are, are feeling a, a sense of um, maybe disconnection and, and needing that community on the campus at the University of Wyoming?
8: When students are coming from that collectivistic worldview into an environment such as the university that really is based on individualistic uh, attitudes, um, it's difficult. It's really difficult, and I think that a lot of times they feel um, isolated. And um, so an American Indian Center will greatly improve the, the, not only the recruitment, but the retention rates. Um, it sounds
0: like you guys have, I mean, just a lot of stuff going on. This seems like exciting times for that relationship between the tribes and the university kind of going forward. But I know that there has been some hard times, too, that, uh, that um, there was some students that came to the university to, to see if they wanted to come to the school and, and had kind of a negative experience here as well.
8: One of the schools that we especially wanted to um, visit and and to really talk to was the Saint Stephen's School, and I think one of the main reasons that we wanted to do that was because of that incident that had occurred um, back then. Yeah,
0: and it, it was it was several students who were visiting to see if they wanted to come here. They went to the university bookstore and then they were taken aside because someone thought that they had seen the students stealing something but when they were searched that was not the case and it and it turned into a case of of racial profiling
8: when we arranged this trip um to go up we really did want to address exactly what had happened here at, at UW um one of the things that we found out was that the the president when this did happen um, never did apologize um, the previous to them. president The previous president mm-hmm. uh, never did apologize to those students and to the school mm-hmm. and to the community um, for being for their students being treated mm-hmm. this way. That uh, really created some resentment. none of these boys um, decided to come here. they all decided to go somewhere else after that had happened to them. When President Nichols got up and spoke um, you know she um, came straight out and apologized. She said that should not have happened, and I apologize for that, even though she wasn't the president, but she wanted to make sure that, that they knew um, that she was sincere in her apology. It was really nice because the students cooked a meal for everybody that uh, attended, and um, they had a what, what's referred to as a healing song. And so, you know, after all of that was done, you know, it just, there's just a really a um, positive outlook on both sides, you know, for the university and, and for the community at, at St. Stephen's. And so that, that was something that, that was just, you know, a really good thing that the president did.
0: Well, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to me about some of these issues.
8: You're welcome.
0: That was High Plains American Indian Research Institute, James Trosper. At this week's UW Board of Trustees meeting, TROSPER presented plans for going forward on Nichols' Native American student initiatives, including an American Indian Center.
1: Coming up in the program with the spring melt starting up, we'll learn about flood insurance and hear how proposed cuts could hurt Wyoming's Meals on Wheels program. This is Open Spaces.
0: Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards.
1: And I'm Bob Beck. After heavy snowfall this winter, mountain snowpack is above average around most of Wyoming. Communities near the Bighorn, Wind River, and Grovant Mountain Ranges have already seen flooding in 2017. And with temperatures continuing to rise, more flooding could be in store. Wyoming Public Radio's Caroline Ballard spoke with Diana Herrera, FEMA's Senior Flood Insurance Specialist for Region 8, which encompasses the Rocky Mountain West, about how to prepare for potential flooding.
4: The snowpack is very, very high. And depending on how that snowpack comes down, uh, whether or not it causes flooding. We have already seen flooding in Lander, in Warland, in Fremont. It's already happened. Um, so what we want to do is make sure that everybody is prepared. What can you do to lessen the risk for flooding? There's a number of um, mitigation opportunities. You can use sandbags. You can make yourself a temporary levee with uh, visqueen and plywood and sand, and to to help give you a little barrier. Around the house, so there are a number of opportunities that you can use in order to reduce the the risk for flooding right now, we just don't know what it's going to do. It seems to have lessened a little bit as some of it has already come down, um, but there's still a lot of snow up there and still a lot to come down out of the mountains, into the rivers, into the streams, and yes, it could cause flooding. so we want to be sure that that people are aware of what their risk is. Regardless of the flood zone, they're at a risk for flooding. Uh, We want to be sure that they take protective measures. If you've got a basement and you see the water coming down, get that stuff out of the basement. Buy flood insurance. Um, There's also a 30-day wait period in order to buy flood insurance. So if you see the water coming down the creek, you're too late. So talk to your insurance agent, get a quote, get your policy in place before the rest of that snowpack comes down. Regardless of the flood zone, you never know when something's going to happen. I hear all the time, "Well, it hasn't flooded in, you know, since 1972, or it hasn't flooded since my granddaddy was a baby." Well, you know, you're due. You know, so it, it, the 100-year floodplain, which is a term that we don't like using because it thinks, "Well, it's only going to happen once every 100 years," but it can happen 1% in any given year to a certain flood height. But we have floods of lower flood heights all the time, everywhere. Water main breaks. Water runs down the street, gets into a structure. That's a flood. People don't think about that.
5: Why don't other forms of home insurance, why don't they cover flooding? Why does that have to be something that's separate?
4: That's an excellent question. The risk is too high for them. Um, if you're in a special flood hazard area and you've got a mortgage, you're 26 percent chance of flooding during that 30 year mortgage. So you know insurance companies are out there to try and go as long as they can without having to pay a claim. They build up their money, they build up these, their, their reserves. When it comes to flooding, because it happens so often, it happens so so deep. It's too much of a risk for them. You have a 4% fire. You have a 9 to 11% to, for a flood on an average policy. And they just don't want that risk.
5: Are a lot of people surprised to find out that they aren't covered for,
7: for flooding?
4: You'd be surprised. I wish I had a dollar every time somebody says, I thought my homeowner's policy covered flood. You know, two thoughts on that. The agent's not doing their job, or they didn't read their policy.
5: How can you... Assess the flood risk for your house or your property.
4: FEMA is charged by Congress to to map flood risks, and uh, we've been doing that since we started in 1968. We've been a little more diligent uh, in updating our flood maps uh, since 1994, the Midwest floods. Um, we've got gotten more funding from Congress to do that. Um, so in you know, so we're charged with updating. maps and mapping the flood risk. When we give that risk to the community who has the authority to enforce what's on that map through their ordinance, um, through their land use requirements, that then is left up to the community to tell people what their risk is. But they can go to any of our our websites. They can go to FEMA.gov. They can go to our mapping website, msc.fema.gov. Key in your address and your flood risk is going to come up. But regardless whether you're in a high risk, a low risk, or moderate risk flood zone, everybody's subject to flooding. It's just the depth of water. But it only takes a little bit of water to to financially, emotionally, physically uh, affect a property owner. You know, six inches of water could be $18,000 worth of damage. If you don't have flood insurance, you're going to have to use your savings. You're going to have to borrow the money to repair the damage.
9: Are there any resources
5: online, anywhere that people should be aware of, uh, looking at this flood season
4: coming up? We have lots of websites. Uh, We've got ready.gov, which is our FEMA general preparedness site. Uh, We have fema.gov. You can go in and key in cost of flood insurance. You can key in... Um, How do I look at a map? You can also go down to your, your local community official that issues permits, and they can also answer questions, show you what the map looks like, pinpoint structures help you with it. But first and foremost, go to your insurance agent. You know, let them find out what flood zone you're in. Let them talk to you about the risk. Let them tell you what the cost of the flood insurance. There may be some documentation that uh, that needs to be obtained. If it's uh, in a special flood hazard area, you may need to get an elevation certificate from a land surveyor uh, because our rates may be based on that.
5: Diana Herrera is FEMA's Region 8 Senior Flood Insurance Specialist.
4: Thank you so much. You're quite welcome.
0: Like many federal programs across the country, Meals on Wheels is facing possible cuts as part of President Donald Trump's proposed budget. The program's Wyoming partners have already experienced cuts at the state level due to the energy downturn, and it's hard to know when the federal budget will be decided on. In the meantime, many homebound seniors and Wyomingites with disabilities that depend on the program are concerned about the future of their care. Lyle Cox has volunteered
2: as a delivery driver for Natrona County Meals on Wheels for nearly 24 years. Today's route is on the northwestern edge of Casper.
9: I've driven this route many, many times, so I've kind of got to know the people, enjoy them. And it's a little more challenging in the wintertime, of course, than it is on a beautiful day like this.
2: Wyoming winters are a challenge for drivers, and Cox says the program has had to cancel services twice this year because of the snow and wind. This route is especially challenging during bad weather because it's more rural than the other 40 routes drivers follow during the week. Cox says the distance can also leave meal recipients isolated from friends, family, and neighbors.
9: So it's somebody to check on them as well as to bring them a a good uh, nutritious meal.
2: Cox says it's fellow drivers that keep him inspired.
9: One of the the drivers that drives five days a week turned 91 last uh, November. So, and he drives every day of the week.
2: Like many of the volunteers, Cox is retired. It's not uncommon for volunteers to eventually become clients. And because Wyoming's population is aging at a quicker rate than the rest of the country, the program may experience a shortage of volunteers in the future. Right now, Cox drives five days a week. He says over the years, he's gotten to know his recipient's pets, so he always has a treat in his pocket.
3: They let me know when i have meals on wheels
2: that's judy kirkendahl she gets meals five times a week after a severe bout of double pneumonia and the flu kirkendahl has trouble breathing and relies on an oxygen tube she says she's barely able to shuffle around the house
3: i used to cook all the time and i love to cook but who has the oomph for it
2: to a certain extent she's trapped inside her home one time after getting out of the hospital cox found Kirkendall after she'd taken a fall when he came to drop off her lunch that day.
3: I'm doing a lot better. I'll eat anything as long as it won't bite back. (laughs) Those damn dogs will eat anything.
2: In addition to the time drivers volunteer to make daily deliveries, meals need to be prepped, cooked, and boxed up. Natrona County Meals on Wheels Executive Director Jamie Lovell says that means early mornings for kitchen staff so they can make sure the county's homebound get a meal that day.
7: So they come in at 6 o'clock and they start prepping their vegetables and stuff for the day, um, cook any meats they have.
2: Each day, Lovell says her organization delivers about 410 meals. She says recipients pay what they can. Sometimes, Laval says they pay $5 to $20 a week. Other times, they can't pay much or at all.
7: When you're faced with trying to pay your gas and lights and provide food for yourself, then that's where we'll step in. That's where we can come in and go, hey, we can help you do this if you can, you know, save your resources for the things that keep you comfortable in your homes.
2: Lovell says Meals on Wheels is a one-of-a-kind service in the area.
7: Really, we're the only ones in Casper that provide home-delivered meals. They're, other than Domino's, <laughs> we're, we're, we're what you get.
2: When it comes to their budget, Lovell says Natrona County Meals on Wheels depends on the federal government for about 20 percent of its funding, then the state for about 30 percent. The other 50 percent is from local grants and community donations. Lovell says if federal funding is pulled, they won't necessarily be closing their doors.
7: We've already cut back over the last couple of years. We've cut staff positions. Like I said, we've cut, you know, the way we we feed our clients maybe, but maybe we're gonna have to look at, maybe instead of doing two meals a day, if they need it, just one. And then the last case scenario, we'll have to go to a waiting list and just serve those most in need. And if that's what we have to do, that's what we have to do.
2: If cuts are made, Judy Kirkendall might be one of those recipients that may not be the most in need. Her children live in town and help her around the house. But she says Meals on Wheels is crucial to living a healthy life.
3: And if anybody in the government says it isn't, they can come talk to me. I'm not afraid of telling anybody anything. Yeah, it's it's worth a lot to a lot of people. It really is.
2: President Trump's proposed cuts to Meals on Wheels will ultimately be up to Congress to decide. And that process has a long road ahead. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Maggie Mullen.
1: After our break, we'll hear a conversation between two people who've agreed to disagree about President Trump. It's all coming up on Open Spaces. You're listening to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck.
0: And I'm Melody Edwards. No matter what happens this weekend, Congress will eventually move to either replace or make serious changes to the Affordable Care Act. Wyoming's congressional delegation says that should help reduce insurance premiums in the state. But that may not be the case. Wyoming saw growth in those who have insurance under the Affordable Care Act. As Wyoming Public Radio's Bob Beck reports, current congressional fixes could do more harm than good.
1: Towards the end of the Wyoming legislative session, a veteran lawmaker was excited about getting rid of the Affordable Care Act. Casper Senator Charles Scott is the longtime chairman of the Senate Health and Labor Committee. Scott has always favored health care reform, especially when it comes to Medicaid. But he has called the Affordable Care Act a disaster. Scott fought for years against having the state expand Medicaid. And he was hoping that reports of getting Medicaid block grants would be great for Wyoming because that would mean money with no strings attached. Be able to implement health savings account, be able to put meaningful cost controls in, stop the abuse of going to the emergency room for things that are not emergencies. There's a whole list of things we can do. Sarah Collins with the Commonwealth Fund says it's not all good news. She says the block grants might remove coverage from those who currently qualify for Medicaid. That's because the state will likely get less money. She says proposed legislation changes how basic Medicaid is funded.
4: Right now they get a match um, from the federal government, and that grows with enrollment. Um, depending on how the um, budget cap is structured, it might be possible that the state of Wyoming would have less money um, to help um, poor and disabled people um Um,
1: To get the repeal and replace legislation approved, Congress is negotiating with states who expanded Medicaid. Collins says had Wyoming expanded, that low-income population probably would have gotten to keep their coverage and the state would have been able to add work requirements and things it wanted to do. But she says there is now no appetite in Congress to let states like Wyoming expand in the future. Gillette Representative Eric Barlow predicted as much last month.
8: The states that expanded Medicaid, they're going to be in a different bargaining, if you will, position than Wyoming. Wyoming chose not to. Um, And so, there's going to be a limited pool of money to go around.
1: Which means Wyoming could have less flexibility with Medicaid dollars than those who expand it. Also, Barlow says Wyoming is a high cost state when it comes to health care, and he's not overly optimistic that getting rid of the Affordable Care Act will change that. Blue Cross Blue Shield is the only insurance provider available in Wyoming under the federal marketplace. Wyoming's delegation is looking forward to getting a provision into the new bill that would allow residents to buy insurance across state lines and maybe provide competition. But even State Senator Charles Scott says it will not reduce costs.
9: The insurance
1: companies will insist on selling insurance based on the costs where you live. And those are higher here in Wyoming because we are short on physicians, so there's no competition, because Medicare discriminates against Wyoming, uh, because we don't have meaningful tort reform. Another issue is that proposed legislation would do away with subsidies in favor of tax credits. Wendy Curran with Blue Cross Blue Shield of Wyoming says that will impact state residents.
2: Somewhere over 90% of Wyoming residents who have insurance through the health health insurance exchange do receive some form of cost share reduction. Um, That's a pretty significant bunch of people who have been reliant on the the cost subsidies to to enable them to have insurance.
1: Curran admits that eliminating some mandates could reduce costs, But overall, she says many in the healthcare community are worried that congressional action could force many in the state to give up their coverage.
2: That puts a burden on hospitals. It puts a burden on costs. We have cost shifting, and that ultimately puts even a higher burden on us in
1: in what our premiums are. From a company standpoint, Curran says they're hoping that any reforms will take a while to implement so that the insurance industry can adapt. If not, that will cause problems for the insurance industry and consumers. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Bob Beck.
0: stop last year in Jackson, then-Mayor Sarah Flittner, took a question from the audience. It was a challenging one from retired physician and consultant Jeff Walker, a staunch Republican. It was obvious from the get-go that the two didn't agree on much, especially on the election of Donald Trump, but they decided to keep talking anyway. As part of my series, I respectfully disagree. I chatted with Flittner and Walker about some of the hard conversations they've been working through. How long have you guys known each other? Um, less than 6 months.
9: Less than 6 months. I'm <laughs> yeah, not yeah, sure the exact know. date, but less than 6 months.
0: Yeah, so so this has been kind of a, a relationship that has been kind of happening over the course of the election of Donald Trump then. You have kind of been um getting to know each other during a, a pretty, you know, turbulent time in our country.
9: Yeah, that's definitely true. It's um <clears throat> so I was a I was a Trump voter. I'm not sure I'm a Trump supporter, and there's a big difference because for me as a you know, longtime Republican, I've been voting since 1972. You know, I, there were issues that were important to me that I felt I had to vote for the Republican ticket in order to see those issues advanced. But I'm not sure I'm a fan of the personality. So my first issue was the judiciary and the appointments. Uh, I felt like we needed to restore some balance to the last eight years of appointments, in particular the Supreme Court. But there's others, other levels of appointments that, <clears throat> that I think need to be m- maybe more balanced. Second thing was the economy, jobs. I think he has a platform. Let's see if it works. Third thing was was the border and I'm, frankly, Sarah and I have talked about this, uh, I, think, I think we need to reestablish our legal immigration process by which we've admitted tens or hundreds of millions of people over the last you know, 80 years. I think that's a re- reasonable process. I'm not a fan of open border.
0: What, what is your response to some of those decisions? They're wrong,
10: just like Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. This is such a, a great case in point, frankly. I like bridges, not walls, and both of us have the same chance of being right. I, I just feel like at the end of the day, we, we're we going to have to come to grips with the fact that we are living in a time of global society, global community, and that really what we're dealing with is um, people who who do not have opportunities, who are living in fear, who do not have the ability to put food on their tables. And some of those people, by the way, are living in our own country, and they voted for change because those things are happening to them right now within our borders.
9: Yeah, and I, I, th- I share a lot of a lot of the Sarah's compassion for the world. And to me, there's an orderly process that needs to be followed, and I think that's why I voted the way I did on that issue, which was let's go back to our immigration policy. Let's go back to what we've established legally through different channels, through lotteries, whatever, and, and we also do political asylum. And I think those are all reasonable ways. But I think where we do agree is what do you do about the 11 million or whatever the number is of people that are here, most of whom are law-abiding, hardworking, family people? I mean, why would we send those people away?
0: Yeah, and, and Jackson has a lot of folks that uh, work in, in the tourism industry there that are legal or illegal uh, working in your community.
9: Absolutely. And and they're, they're wonderful residents. And so let's figure out a way that they can stay and realize their dream and, and they work mm-hmm. alongside the rest of us. It's You don't send them away. And that's what I wish this president would address.
10: That's Jeff talking about bridges, not <laughs> well, walls. Well, that's the I'm internal just...
9: bridge.
10: <laughs> <laughs> you know, until we were talking right now, Jeff, I wasn't even thinking about the litany that you just listed where we both agree. I think most Americans, if not Yeah, the vast majority would say an orderly process, a predictable one, a fair one, a transparent one. I don't think we're arguing about that. And that, to me, is the missed opportunity with the fear mongering or the lack of civility because we're kind of agreeing on the policy front. And I guess that's where I want to see a lot more from leaders in our country at every level. I want to see listening and problem solving instead of bloviating and egomaniacal approaches because it just does not serve.
0: Now, I I know that we had talked earlier that you had, you know, real concerns about President Trump's rhetoric about women and um, and sexual assault and things like that in the campaign and that that was something that you guys kind of discussed as friends. How did you work through that one? Well, I don't think it was OK with either one of us.
10: I think that where, you know, it, it's so not OK with me that I could never support a candidate who could say those things publicly or or have those values,
0: but it so it, do you feel okay with uh, people voting that you know voting for somebody who has used that kind of rhetoric? How do you how do you understand that? I, I think Jeff was wrong about that. He thinks I was wrong about some other things.
10: I have an opinion about his opinion, but <laughs> I would rather spend my time constructively um, in conversation. Like we agree on so many things. So what's Jeff gonna help me do? In terms of women's equality, pay equality in this state, what's he going to help me do? And you know what? Um, I'll talk to you in a year, and I'll give you some concrete answers because I know he will.
9: We actually agree on the fact that we didn't, you know, we thought thought that was a deplorable comment, right? That was really. I have three adult daughters. Uh, all of them are liberal voters, and we and they were incensed, and that actually was, was the word. These other issues were just. Somehow greater in perspective. Uh, to me, the Supreme Court nominations, the, the economy, the, the long-term effects of the election to me were what, I, what made me vote for um, the Republican ticket. You know I, and I understand, and my, my girls are still mad at me. Right.
10: <laughs> and I guess I would take this opportunity it. and I to say that it, it's painful to hear that a smart, accomplished man made a different choice that a a smart, accomplished woman may have felt as an affront. I think our opportunity to problem-solve together and make progress stands a much better chance if we're in conversation than it would if I called Jeff names or he never engaged with me or bothered to pose a question to me. And, And that's at the root of it. It's not about agreements. It's about what is the best opportunity to make progress for our country and our communities.
0: Well, thank you both so much for taking some time to talk to me about your conversations and and how you've been working through some hard issues.
10: Thank thank you you for
9: for the opportunity.
0: Yeah, thanks for being interested in the topic. We appreciate that. That was Sarah Flitner and Jeff Walker speaking as part of our series, I Respectfully Disagree.
1: Wyoming lawmakers are pushing to repeal an Obama-era rule that would limit methane emissions on federal lands. But they're hitting a snag, and this time it's coming from their fellow Republicans.
11: Correspondent Matt Laszlo has the story from Washington. The Trump administration may have gotten off to a rocky start on everything from lying about the size of his inauguration to its stalled immigration ban. But when it comes to repealing regulations, it's been relatively smooth sailing. Working with Congress, the president has loosened a restriction on gun owners, ended a reporting requirement for energy companies, and killed a rule intended to protect waterways from coal runoff. Earlier this week, Wyoming Senator John Barrasso told us numerous industries are feeling the impact already.
9: You know, yesterday at the Loaf and Jug in Casper, before getting on the plane, and one guy comes in, sees one of his buddies, and he said, how are things? He said, good, we're hiring again. I mean, to me, that's a big sign about Wyoming and the optimism uh, for the state.
11: Congress and the White House have been able to kill those Obama-era rules by using a tool called the Congressional Review Act. It allows Congress and a new president to act swiftly to end regulations from the end of the last president's term. Wyoming lawmakers want to use that tool to end a rule limiting the release of methane, a greenhouse gas, on federal lands. Barrasso is pushing his party to quickly kill the rule.
9: I think the congressional review act is the way to go it's our opportunity right now to peel back some of the administration the last administration's regulations that came out they're called midnight regulations because they did them way into the term
11: but there's resistance from within the gop on the methane rule colorado republican senator Cory gardner is still on the fence because he fears repealing it may impede with his state's law
9: colorado came up with a unique colorado solution for uh, this very question. And I want to make sure that Colorado rights are uh, accounted for in any regulation, whether it's a regulation on venting clearing as proposed or whether it's a repeal of such regulation. I want to make sure that, that Colorado solution is maintained.
11: The methane bill squeaked out of the House, passing by just five votes. It now seems stuck in the Senate in part because of people like Maine Republican Senator Susan Collins, who opposes repealing it.
4: Uh, Because I feel that the environmental consequences are significant and there are other ways uh, to solve the methane problem other than by flaring or venting it into the atmosphere.
11: Collins and other Republicans would rather see Congress write a new rule rather than scrapping it altogether, because the Review Act prohibits a similar rule from being written after Congress rescinds it. But Wyoming Congresswoman Liz Cheney disagrees.
12: Yes, if you repeal it through the Congressional Review Act, then it puts restrictions in place in terms of putting the exact same legislation back again, or the exact same rule back again. But the point of this is to say this rule is damaging, this rule doesn't accomplish what folks need it to accomplish. It's unnecessary. And this gives us the ability to say repeal that, and then you can put in place the kind of regulation we ought to have. My view, frankly, though, is that ought to be happening at state level, and it is.
11: Wyoming sued the federal government over the methane rule, arguing the state already has strong enough methane restrictions in place. Cheney says that's why she doesn't want the Environmental Protection Agency involved.
12: In my view, it's a good thing if the EPA can't put these rules back in place again, because the DEQs ought to be regulating this stuff, not the EPA.
11: What's DEQ in English? I'm sorry.
12: (laughs) (laughs) The Department of Environmental Quality, which, when the EPA was established, there were no state DEQs, but we have them in every single state now, and they're the ones that are closest to these issues, and those are the, that's where this regulation and, and policy directive ought to be coming from.
11: Cheney says the methane rule is just one example of federal regulations that have become so layered on top of each other that they're impeding the state's energy industry.
12: It's not just the methane rule, but you've seen it across the board, this duplication, which is what leads to, you know, nine years of, of, you know, uh, in terms of being able to get permits for new projects in the oil and gas industry, for example. It can take up to nine years now when you're talking about trying to work on federal land. So um, these are, you know, rules that have got to go. They're rules that have really hurt the industry. and, And I hope that the Senate will see the light on this and move quickly.
11: While Wyoming Republicans have been successful in scrapping regulations up until now, they don't seem to have the votes in their own party to repeal the methane rule. At least for now. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Matt Laszlo in Washington.
0: Wrapping up, we'll learn about how one woman is trying to help declining moose populations. This is Open Spaces. back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards. And
1: I'm Bob Beck. Moose numbers are down across Wyoming. Now a woman who lives in what used to be known as moose country is asking Wyoming's Game and Fish Department to stop hunting near her Wood River home near Matitsi. Penny Preston reports a hunter who's been waiting for decades to hunt moose there disagrees and the Wyoming Game and Fish Department is caught in the middle.
3: The Jackson area has been well known for its moose for a long time. And when a big bull steps out of the willows in Grand Teton National Park,
10: Oh my gosh.
3: Tourists are amazed. The Wood River near Matitsee is also known for its healthy moose population. Mary Rumsey has lived on her place on the Wood River for 20 years and she's seen a lot of moose on her property. She even uses her moose pictures for Christmas cards. But one Christmas moose pair will never be seen again. An out-of-state elk hunter killed them last year. He shot our mother moose and her baby. He received a fine, no jail time, suspended hunting license, but it is just ridiculous. He didn't even have a visual on the animal. Rumsey says three other Wood River moose died since last fall. We had another moose that that fell into a, a, a trout pond. She says one bull was confused by an electric fence. It got run over, broken spine, game and fish had to come and euthanize it. She also thinks recent logging in the Shoshone National Forest and too much road hunting is reducing moose numbers. And we used to have 15, 20 moose up here and now we've seen one this winter. Rumsey's neighbor, blames wolves and bears for the decline.
8: I think they have one of the largest impacts um, on moose mortality rates that, that we're not doing anything
3: about. Pearson Hodgins is an outfitter who says the Wood River area will be difficult for moose hunters.
8: In all honesty, we we wouldn't hunt moose in the Wood River. We'd go over to the Grable or somewhere else.
3: Rumsey has been writing the game and fish biologist, asking them to cut the number of local area bull moose tags from five to three. She doesn't have a problem with hunting. She just thinks hunters can help bring the moose numbers back up in the Wood River area by hunting them elsewhere. Rumsey brought up her request at a Matitsi season setting meeting. She argued hard to either cut the number of tags in the hunt area to three or ban hunting on the Shoshone National Forest around the Wood River Road. In January, Bart saw one year old, the two year old and three year old boys. A lot of you people are in the cattle business we're running
4: on a breeding
3: stock. While some others agreed with Rumsey, Marvin Blakesley of Cody did not. He's been accruing preference points for years.
11: 21, 22, ever since the preference point system came into existence.
3: Now he wants to hunt moose in the exact place Rumsey wants to protect
11: them. And certainly Wood River would be one of my uh, prime places to hunt because there is some access into there that's non-horseback.
3: Blakesley also blames predators for the moose decline. But Game and Fish biologist told the hunters at the meeting numbers dropped all over Wyoming in the last decade, even in places where there are no wolves or grizzlies. In his Cody office, Wildlife Management Coordinator Tim Woolley said,
1: Actually, moose populations worldwide have shown declines over the last 10 to 20 years. Even in the Scandinavian countries, um, they're studying moose population dynamics, trying to understand this.
3: Recent game and fish flight surveys indicate moose populations in the Matitse hunting area have rebounded slightly from a very low count in 2009. Still, they don't think hunters killing five bulls there would harm the population. Woolley says bulls move across large areas and pointed to the hunter who has waited,
1: like Blakesley. And if we did cut that off, that person would be, would lose that opportunity that I could not defend biologically because I'd say, you know, really that on a population as a whole, that that shouldn't impact it.
3: From Matitsi, Penny Preston for Wyoming Public Radio.
0: Thanks for joining us for Open Spaces. If you missed any part of the program or want to hear one of our stories again, you can find them on our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org.
1: There you can also explore old shows, pitch us stories for future ones, and link to our podcast that's also available on iTunes. Anna Rader is our web editor.
0: We also invite you to visit us on Facebook, and all of our reporters can be found on Twitter.
1: Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.